Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello to you all, I'm Peter Moore and today we have a very rare and special treat for you. Our guest is one of the greatest of Britons. Lady Hale was, until her retirement three years ago, the President of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, the most senior judge in the country. After her retirement, she wrote a memoir. It's called, for reasons that some of you might well recall, Spider Woman, and it documents Lady Hale's singular story that began in a little village school in North Yorkshire. Here, she writes, one of her first great loves was history. The other day, I sat down with Lady Hale in her beautiful home in London. We talked about her love of the past and why she thinks we should all know the 17th century better. She then takes me back to a fascinating year in British legal history. I hope you enjoy it. I'll begin by saying Lady Hale, a very warm welcome to Travels Through Time. We're sitting here in Victoria, you might hear some children chattering nearby or in the distance because there's a school just across the way. But I have to say it's a huge thrill to be with you today. We're going to be talking about history and the law, of course, and I'll be asking you some questions about your thoroughly absorbing memoir, Spider Woman, which is also here with us, which um, you described the book yourself early on in terms that I can't improve upon, which is the story of how a little girl from a little school in a little village in North Yorkshire became the most senior judge in the United Kingdom. Let's let's talk about Spider-Woman first. Um, you've written so much, of course, this isn't your first book. You've been writing books for decades. Maybe this is the first book of this kind. It's a memoir. What was it like to write? Was it a really enjoyable experience for you? It was an extremely enjoyable experience, very different from all my previous books because my previous books were all about the law, sometimes a legal textbook, sometimes a commentary on the law, but this was, I'm afraid, about me yeah, and well, my life. Mm. It, it does, as I said, it takes your story um, from the beginning, and the beginning is in Yorkshire in the 1940s, in that little village near Richmond, which you always say is the original Richmond, you point out with a note of pride. It is the original Richmond, it doesn't have to be pointed out, it's just the truth. It's the truth. It takes you all the way on this extraordinary journey of your career. I also thought, reading it, that it's, it's a panorama of British society after the Second World War, because as you go through, you're continually talking about how society is, how you think it should be, what the change is going to be. And there was one particular thing I wanted to talk about right at the beginning, because it's clear that you're very keen on education. You come from a family of teachers and that you went to some very, very good schools. You passed the 11 plus, of course. Now, one thing that's changed particularly in the 60s and 70s, is the old grammar school education has been supplanted by the comprehensive system. I wanted to ask you if you had an opinion on that. Uh, well, I got very mixed feelings because it was obvious that the 
quality of education that I had at Richmond High School for Girls, even though it was a very small school, was pretty high quality education. And one was very conscious that the other people who went to the local secondary modern school did not have that quality of education. Um, but of course it was deeply unfair. I mean, not only because everything hinged on whether or not you passed the 11 plus exam, uh, but also because of the disparities in the availability of high school and grammar school places. So there were half the places for girls that there were for boys in the town, possibly even less than half. I later learned that only 17% of secondary school age children in North Yorkshire went to high school or grammar school, whereas in Cheshire and Surrey, it was more like 33%. So the disparities in provision, coupled with the inequality in the quality of the education, mean the system was completely indefensible. So it's right that it should, it had to, it had to go. Uh, but of course, that means that the comprehensive schools ought to be good schools. And they ought to be capable of catering for a wide variety of aptitudes and backgrounds, advantage and disadvantage. I think we're quite lucky in Richmond. I have four grandchildren who went to Richmond School after the boys' grammar school, the girls' high school and the secondary modern school um, amalgamated in the 70s. And I think they had a pretty good education. But part of that's because Richmond's such a nice place. Mm. You know, it's a beautiful place. It's the sort of place where good teachers come and tend to stay. And possibly it doesn't have quite the same social problems that, say, an inner city school will have. Mm. So it's got quite a lot going for it, in other words. Let's stick with education for a moment. Um, Because for A-level, you chose history, Latin and French. And your first thought for university, you point out, in Spider-Woman, was history. But then you said, this is an alluring point for all of us historians, that Miss Thornton, who's a character who needs a bit of um, attention herself in a moment, um, did not think that you were clever enough to study history, so that you were left with the law. Is that correct? Well, I always exaggerate. I say that I chose law because Miss Thornton did not think I was clever enough to be a historian. That's not exactly what she said. What she said, I mean, history was my favourite subject at school. So it was the obvious one to apply to, go to Oxford or Cambridge uh, to read. Uh, She was an Oxford historian. And she said to me, Brenda, I don't think you're a natural historian. But she clearly did think I was clever enough to get into either Oxford or Cambridge, which was a big thing to think. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit unfair of me to say that she didn't think I was clever enough to read history, I think. But she was thinking, is there something we might, which might suit your skill set better, I think. Uh, She had the idea of economics. I don't know where she got that idea from. I was not in the slightest bit attracted by economics because economics is an awful lot of theory and I'm not really a theoretical person. Mm -hmm. We did a little bit of it, obviously, for our economic history uh, and I wasn't attracted by it. But on the other hand, I was extremely attracted by the constitution and the constitutional history of the 17th century. Uh, And so I said, oh, what about law? And I mean, to her credit, she didn't say nonsense, girls don't do law, which was more or less true, or they only do law if their father's a solicitor, which was also more or less true. 
she actually said, well, that's a good idea. So let's go for it. And of course, the A-levels I were doing were perfect for studying law. Yeah, I think you've actually got a chapter which is titled Why the Law? Yeah. And it is a curious um, point, really, because law, and certainly in my time, wasn't studied as a subject at school. It was something that people no. did no, or they were drawn right. towards. Mm. And um, you've got a little bit ahead of me there because you said it was the constitutional history of the 17th mm. century mm. in England, which really interested you and that was maybe some sort of catalyst which mm. which brought you towards mm. the law um the 17th century has long been out of fashion really we tend to look at the tudors and the dictators of the 20th century there's endless studies of of um of the the two world wars but you make this case in the book for the 17th century mm. as being this real crucible of our constitution mm. when we had this great progress and i thought it would be nice if you just talk to us about that for a moment because it seems so important to you subsequently in your career. Yes, it was. Uh, I didn't go into law because of criminal law and the drama of the criminal trial. That was not what attracted me. It was the constitutional history. Well, in the 17th century, it's described as the century of uh, rebellion, restoration and revolution, which is true, obviously, if there was a rebellion. Uh, the Civil War, they killed the king. They then found they didn't like the alternative and so they brought back um, the, the monarchy uh, in 1660. But then again, they found that they didn't much like the way the second of the kings after the Restoration was behaving. And so one way or another, he was got rid of. It's all a bit murky about whether he uh, fled or whether he was pushed or whatever. But they then invited... William and Mary in on terms. They said, please come and be king and queen of England. We're only talking about England because it's before the Act of Union with Scotland. Here are our terms. You mustn't try changing the law. You mustn't try dispensing with the laws as it suits you for your people. You, you mustn't have cruel and unusual punishments. You mustn't deny people bail. You mustn't interfere with proceedings in Parliament. So the seeds were sown for our current constitution, which is a constitutional limited monarchy and parliamentary sovereignty, the two basic principles of our constitution, all from the 17th century. I really regret that it isn't a compulsory part of the history curriculum because so many people in this country are ignorant. It's not their fault of the basics of our constitution and where they stem from. And if they'd done the 17th century, they wouldn't be. You make a very clear case for it, and it seems an obvious one, but this story, we should just stress, is extraordinary because it's, mm. it's a story of personalities, isn't it? But mm. improbable outcomes as well, because to take... Mm. I suppose we're talking about power in a way, aren't we, and where power resides, Always. political power. Always, yes. And to take it away from mm. the mm. Crown, in the sense, and to divide it in different places. Well, mostly put it in Parliament. Yeah. And, of course, the Crown... Uh, in the shape of the government, did retain a huge amount of influence and, of course, still does, but it's no longer wielded by the Crown. It's, it's wielded by the government, which is chosen because it can command a majority in Parliament. You must, in this case, just tell us a little bit about Edward Coke. He's one of your um, yes. heroes of this yes. story. Yes. T tell us why. Well, he's an extraordinary person, really, because he, I think he prosecuted the... Um, gunpowder plotters you know in 1605 but he became chief justice and then stood up to the king 
in several well-known cases, I mean, telling the king that he couldn't make laws, telling the king that he couldn't decide cases, you know, um, which is an interesting thing. The king thought that he was the fount of all justice, so he could decide cases if he fancied it. And uh, Cook told him, no, I'm sorry, you're very, you're very, very clever man, very well-educated man, but you're not a lawyer. Uh, and you don't know about the laws of England. He was, of course, talking to James I, who was, of course, James VI of Scotland, so he was a Scotsman rather than an Englishman. I think that was part of it. Uh, and then, of course, he went into Parliament and he was uh, highly influential in something called the Petition of Right in 1629, which was the forerunner, really, of the Bill of Rights that we had in 1688, 1689. So yes, he was extremely influential. Also, he wrote law reports, so reporting cases so that people knew what had been decided, which is the foundation of how our common law is built up from decision to decision to decision. Uh, and he also wrote treaties on, on law. So he was an amazing chap mm. and a very brave one. Mm. I think I have to say, in a, on an optimistic note, there are signs that the 17th century is coming back into view again. There's been some really good history on it recently. New books um, up swell in scholarship. So that is something to note. But I feel like we're almost back here in uh, Miss Thornton's class. In, <laughs> would, would she have been the teacher to tell you about these things in the, if we um, were to join those two? Yes, possibly. Dots? Well, she taught his... We had two modules in history. One was social and economic history from, I think, the 18th to the 20th century. And that was taught by another teacher called Miss Batson. We did European political history from the end of the Thirty Years' War uh, with Miss Thornton. So I suppose some of the 17th century constitutional stuff will have come into that. But I'm not sure that it really did. I think I knew about it before mm. because I had said, could I please do British Constitution as an A-level? And Miss Thornton had said, no, that's not a good idea because we can't teach it to you. Uh, and she was right. And also, I think it wouldn't have been seen as as valuable by universities as history, Latin and French were. Mm. These mm. these rather off-beam subjects um, mm. were not. It is. It's subjects. interesting when you look at maybe if you compare Britain and America and what role they mm. have for their constitution. They talk about yeah. it endlessly. They do. Mm. And I don't think it gets a, a mention in Britain. Well, I think most people don't understand the basics. I mean, they've got a vague idea, but they really don't understand the basic relationship between the three organs of government or really what the role of the Crown is um, mm. and what the role of the court is in relation to the government and so on, and Parliament. Mm. It's a great time to be talking about it now when we have a new monarch and we can look at these things afresh. But anyway, let's leave all that to one side for the moment. Because today, what we're going to do, I think, is something really interesting, really exciting. We we have this format that we um, go through every week where we invite someone to take us back to a year in the past and look at it in three parts or three scenes. And, of course, when I put this question to you, um, I was really interested to see what you were going to pick, if it was something from the 17th century. What you've chosen, I think, is, is really fascinating and tallies with other interests that developed subsequently throughout your career. We'll get to that in a moment, but first of all, I'll ask you the question that I always ask everyone, which is, if you could travel back to a single calendar year to tell us about it, which year would you choose? The year I have chosen is 1925. Okay, well, let's just do a little bit of scene setting. 1925, Roaring Twenties, um, the Prime Minister at the time is Stanley Baldwin, who's a Conservative. 
he's following Ramsay MacDonald, who in 1924 had that short Labour government. The I very first Labour government. I yes. hope I'm getting all this correct. The 20s as a decade is a very interesting one because it's again post-war. But I suppose we have this idea of progress as well and speed and motion. Is that right? I don't know about that. What uh, strikes me about it is that certainly for the first decade after the end of the First World War was a a decade of enormous progress in women's rights. Mm. And one might think that that was slightly surprising because sometimes when you've had the upheaval of a terrible war, sometimes women don't do too well out of that. Mm. They didn't do too well really after the Second World War. They were rather sent back into the kitchen and uh, into having babies. Whereas that isn't what happened after the First World War, because after all, women got the vote. Well, some women got the vote in 1918, middle class women, basically. And in 1919, we had the Sex Disqualification Removal Act, which meant that women were entitled to join the legal profession and take public office. Uh, initially as magistrates, but eventually, of course, as judges, various other entitlements that they had. And then there were women's groups that were campaigning for much greater legal equality for women. The National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies renamed itself the National Union of Societies for Equal Citizenship. And the leader thereof was one Eleanor Rathbone who, of course, was a very famous campaigner for women's rights. And at the same time, uh, one of my heroines, Viscountess Rhonda, she was a very notable feminist. She set up something called the Six Point Group. And between them, these two organisations were campaigning for improvements in the rights of women. Should we see this in the development of, of women's movements? We have maybe a decade before the suffragettes who are in some case is quite militant and they are very much trying to wrest attention towards their cause. Should we see this as a more professional progression of what was going on maybe in 1914-15? Well the two groups I'm talking about mm. were, were definitely not militant in the sense of being lawbreakers. Mm. They were campaigning for changes in the law yeah. to the advantage of women and they were campaigning in very savvy ways. Mm. Know, making forging good relations with the relevant politicians and so on. Mm-hmm. But there was just a general atmosphere that the law was unfair to women and things needed to be changed. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you mentioned before the Sex Disqualification Removal Act of mm-hmm. um, 1919. This is something which appears in Spider-Woman because it does allow women go to into the professions, universities, public life and so on. But even so, all these things, are there's qualifications, aren't there? Because I think you point out... Cambridge still refused at this point to give women uh, degrees and the colleges like Newnham and Girton, which is your old one, um, are still not really admitted as regular mm. university colleges. Mm. They're seen as some sort of second class. Or Is that right? I don't know how Cambridge got away with that. Mm. There must have been some special dispensation mm. from the uh, 1919 Act because Oxford did admit women to degrees in about 1920, maybe 21, anyway, as soon as they could. Mind you, all the colleges were still single sex. Mm -hmm. And it goes back a bit to what I was saying about comprehensive education. Single sex colleges, there were five in Oxford 
for women and about 25 for men. And in Cambridge, there were three for women and 21 for men. Mm. And that was until the 70s and 80s when all the colleges uh, went mixed, all bar two of the women's colleges in Cambridge, which are still single sex. Mm. And they've got reasons for that. But it meant there was a quota. Mm. Um, so, yes, inequality wasn't wiped out. No, not at all. So you three for us, and these are going to be our three scenes. And the best way we thought of organising this, um, your suggestion, of course, but is to look at them in the order in which they gained royal assent, which I suppose I could just say that's the final mm. point of the legislation passing through Parliament, something which might take us all the way back to the 17th century and constitutional history again. Mm. The first one of these we're going to look at is is on the 9th of April, the Administration of Estates Act. Mm. Can you tell us why you picked this, what its significance is, and how it was received? You might think it's pretty odd. I mean, it sounds very dull, doesn't it? But it was part of a large number of pieces of legislation which eventually hit the statute book in 1925, which reformed property law, basically land law. So we had the Law of Property Act, we had the Land Charges Act, we had the Settled Land Act, we had the Trusts Act. And so, and amongst these was the Administration of Estates Act, which dealt with the rules about what happened to a dead person's property uh, if they died without leaving a will. Obviously, people could, who had property could leave it by will in whatever way they wanted, but an awful lot of people didn't make wills especially ordinary people. Mm. Uh, but the previous law had been that real property, that's basically land, descended by rules of primogeniture, which meant eldest son inherited. Everybody else got nothing very much, uh, nothing at all. Whereas personal property uh, was uh, divided up. But there were also rules about widow's entitlement to dower, um, a third of the estate, husband's widower's entitlement to courtesy again if if his deceased wife had had any property which of course varied but usually until 1882 didn't so there were sex-based rules in other words and so the division between real property land and everything else was abolished and the sex-based rules were abolished and there was one rule which was the surviving spouse whether a widow or a widower got the first £1,000 worth, absolutely, and anything left over was she, because it was usually she, got a life interest in anything left over, and the children got, a, in half of anything left over, and the children got a life interest in the other half. And then, of course, when she died, the children shared out the whole of um, what uh, that half. And she could do what she liked with the £1,000. Because it was normally a widow, because wi women tended to survive their husbands. And the £1,000 was chosen because that would take up almost all of ordinary people's property. It's a big I, thing. It's a, it's a really, really big mm. thing. And uh, £1,000, as, you, as mm. you stress there, is a, a substantial sum of money, Yeah. especially 100 years ago. One of the things which I suppose is striking about this, we looping back on a point I made before is that this was brought in by a conservative government led by Stanley Baldwin which is to some people that would seem a little bit against the grain 
um, transferring, mm. transferring mm. Um, power or money in this way, giving women a greater degree of freedom. Is that just an expression of how the culture was at the time? Well, obviously, who could say? This is speculation. But there seemed to be a remarkable degree of political consensus in favour of greater equality for women immediately after the First World War. We've already referred to the vote and to the Sex Disqualification Removal Act. Now, they were both passed under the coalition government that there was at the end of the war. The, the law of property reforms had been under discussion and in the making for a very long time, and that was to do with the fact that the property law was far too complicated and it needed to be simplified uh, in order to cater for a broadening of the property-owning classes, which the government was in favour of. Mm. It was a coalition government, Liberal and Conservative. Uh, and then that fell apart and the Conservative. And then there was the Labour government that came in in uh, 24, just for 11 months or so, wasn't it? But they all seemed to be singing from the same sort of hymn sheet. Although, of course, uh, we'll come on to some examples of kind of pushback. You know, not people not getting everything that they wanted. But I think in the administration of the States Act, they, they more or less did get what they wanted. The Lord Chancellor at the time, in 1925, was Lord Cave. But the Lord Chancellor in the earlier governments, Conservative coalition and uh, Conservative governments, had been Lord Birkenhead, F.E. Smith. Mm-hmm. Now, F.E. Smith was not, one would have thought, the greatest uh, supporter of the rights of women, and yet... Yeah, he was the person who declared the government's support for the Sex Disqualification Removal Act, which was a, a private member's bill. Uh, and he was a strong supporter of the re- property law reforms. In fact, he gives himself the credit for a lot of it. So with all of these, I, just to try and find out a bit about the context, of their reception, I was looking through the newspapers, and um, these are the newspapers from 1925. There's lots of um, notices were put into the news columns of new laws of inheritance and it really did strike people this piece of legislation i didn't find too much negative Mm. um press so it seems like generally people thought it was a Mm. good step forward in a progressive Mm. modern society um one thing uh, i should note is that the act plays a major role apparently as the property act in the 1927 mystery novel a Natural Death by Dorothy L. Sayers. Absolutely. I don't know. Yes. If you, are you aware of this? Is yes, this... yes, I am aware of this. I remember reading. I'm a great Dorothy Sayers fan. She was part of the reason for my feminism, I think, because Peter Whimsey, Harriet Vane novels, basically very feminist. Mm-hmm. And, but this was, not, this was before that, Unnatural Death. And that all turned on a particular rule of inheritance, which meant that X would inherit under the old law, but wouldn't inherit under the new law. And so X murdered the deceased with the property in order to benefit from the old law. Mm. Uh, murdered just before the new law came into force. So it was, a, it was a novel that turned on the change of the law, which came into force in 1926. A seemingly motiveless murder, yeah. which um, they set out to solve. So, well, it shows just how fascinating the law can be because there we have it converted in a one small step into a thrilling work of detective fiction and this is the great age of the detective novel or the detective short story as well we should say yeah i I don't know i think this is this is a really really good place to start and we we can see here society Mm. changing quite substantially through one Mm. piece of legislation could i ask about 
and I'm not sure if you'll be able to talk too much about this, but I'll ask in, in any case, does this put Britain into an unusually progressive situation in comparison with other countries, do you know? Um, are we looking a bit peculiar at this point, or are we catching up? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I think in terms of the property legislation, we were, the whole package of property legislation, mm. not just the Administration of Estates Act, I think we were ahead of the game in a lot of the countries which had inherited English law, mm. which is obviously uh, forgetting the United States of America, but um, the rest of the um, Anglo-American legal mm. world had the pre-1925 <laughs> property law, mm. and many of them retained it for a very long time thereafter. So I mm. think in that respect, we were a bit ahead of the game. Not so sure about our comparison with those countries in the world who have a completely different system of law, but based on the continental European mm. systems. Uh, I couldn't really talk about that. Is this one one of a supplementary question, which is um, whether this is something that's referred back to today? Is this a, a piece of legislation which, as you, because you taught law for so many years up in Manchester, um, of course, is this, is this something you would have cause to talk to students about? Is it well known within the profession or have you just picked it today? Well, the basic structure of the Administration of Estates Act 1925 remains the really? basic structure of our law of intestate succession. Yeah. They've upped the £1,000 uh, to a great deal more than that yeah. now. Probably still not enough, but they have upped it. But the basic structure is the same. Hello there, it's Peter here and it's time for the latest news from Ace Cultural Tours. Now, a few weeks ago, you might have listened to my conversation with Andrew Spira, who's one of Ace's tour guides. He was telling me about some of the great art of the High Renaissance in the year 1500. If that's a subject that interests you and you'd like to find out a little bit more today, then Ace have an array of brilliant art tours coming up over the weeks and months ahead. In July, for instance, there's one setting out to explore the art and landscapes of Switzerland. And then closer to home, there's another on the art collections and stately homes of the West Country. Then in August, they have a tour which is investigating the art of Constable in Gainsborough in Suffolk. If you're after something a little bit different, then why not head off to Hamburg with Ace to discover the history of the Hanseatic League? Or you could relax at the Verona Opera Festival or feel the wind in your hair on a tour to wild and ancient Orkney. I think that that's the one that I would go for. Find the tour that's perfect for you at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Holidays for the culturally curious. Let's move on to the next piece of legislation because I think that's a good start. But let's see where we go to next. And this is something that gained the Royal Assent on the 31st of July. So three or so, three or four months later. And it's the Guardianship of Infants Act 1925. So uh, do you want to tell us about this piece, please? Well, this was really important. In the common law, that's the judge-made law of England and Wales. The husband was the sole guardian of his legitimate children and the wife had no rights or authority in relation to her children. Just occasionally the Lord Chancellor in his court might, if the husband had been really, really wicked, 
uh, restrict his rights, but that wasn't the general run of things. And of course, uh, until something got to court, there was no, uh, there was nothing equi- there was no equality basically. And then along came Caroline Norton, who was the granddaughter of the playwright Richard Brinsley Sheridan, and she was a great beauty a society hostess and a writer. And she was married to a Mr Norton who beat her up. And eventually their rows were such that he took their children away from her and sent them to be looked after by his sister where they were very badly neglected and there was nothing she could do about it. Which is almost the kind of thing you can imagine happening in a Dickens novel, yeah. isn't it? It's a well, standard thing that absolutely. would happen throughout uh, And it, was, it could happen to anybody. Obviously it won't have happened to most people but it could happen to anybody including somebody as as powerful so in a way was, as Caroline a Norton that any man could yes. hold over his wife. Absolutely. That if you do not behave I yeah. take the children away from you. Absolutely. And she was uh friendly with quite a few politicians and eventually prompted the then Sergeant Talford who was a member of parliament to promote the custody of infants act. 1839 and that empowered the Court of Chancery to give the mother custody of infants up to the age of seven and access to them up to the age of majority which is then 21 but not if she'd committed adultery of course because she had to be really good so that was a beginning of expressly allowing courts to interfere in the husband's rights then there was the custody of infants act 1873 which extended the possibility of custody up to the age of 16 and made custody agreements in deeds of separation enforceable. So it did mean that if they agreed to live apart, uh, they could agree where the children should go and that could be enforced. Then there was the Guardianship of Infants Act 1886 and that extended the possibility of custody up to the age of majority and required the court to have regard to the welfare of the child when considering whether to give the mother custody. Uh, And it also provided that the mother could act jointly with any guardian appointed by the father to act after the father's death. Because before that, the father had been able to appoint a guardian who who would take precedence over the mother's rights. So it was a beginning of that. So there we are, 1886. Things had moved on. But the 1925 Act really removed the whole idea that the rights of the father, if it got to court was superior to the rights of the mother. It gave mothers and fathers access to the courts to ask for the resolution of any issue about the custody or upbringing or administration of property of their children up to the age of majority. And it directed that the court should regard the welfare of the child as the first and paramount consideration. So looking at the child rather than the rights of the parents, but of course giving the mother... um, once it got to court, or once the father died, equal status with the father. Now, the campaigning groups, the women's organisations that I mentioned earlier, they had wanted full, equal rights and authority for married mothers without having to go to court. And the, the government, mainly the officials, I think, as, rather than the ministers, thought this was a very bad idea because we can't have a democracy of two. We've got to have a single person who can take all the decisions that we in government need to have taken. Uh, And so they fought against this equality before getting to court or death. And let me see, the 
A particularly important uh, proponent of this view was Sir Claude Schuster. Sir Claude Schuster is a very famous person to lawyers because he was the chief official in the Lord Chancellor's office for a very long time between the wars. Uh, And he thought it was absolutely crazy. How on earth could you have them being able to take issues about the upbringing of their children to be decided, having equal rights and having those to be decided by a court? Why? How How on earth could a court decide which school a child should go to? Actually, I have done just that. Mm. One of the cases I tried when I was in the family division, one of the issues, was where the couple's son should go to school because he'd been put down for one school when he was young. These are public school people. His mother had decided that she wanted to send him to a completely different school. There was a religious element in this. And I, in fact, decided that he should go to a school that was between the two, suited his particular aptitudes for which he got a scholarship. Not difficult. It wasn't difficult because you're deciding what's the best for this child. Not what does mum want or what does dad want, but what's the best for this child. But this, um, is, um, this is something that you write about in the book as well, mm-hmm. how often, you know, we're in this long human story, but you talk about looking back over your slips from the 1960s and being really struck at how even today the same issues are at stake even though maybe Mm. the law has changed in a particular area Mm. and attitudes have shifted Mm. we're still grappling with these issues and the big issue that we're talking about here seems to be the the principle that that the child's welfare should come Mm. first Mm. which is something that occasionally rears its its head today in, in really traumatic cases doesn't it and you have to pass judgment on I don't know maybe if a child is in in hospital or they're mm. terminally ill or something like that where do the rights lie mm. is that right well there are two separate sorts of issue there are issues between parents mm. married or unmarried these days mm. about what should happen to the children when they separate mm. and those are governed by the first and paramount well mm. now we just call it the paramount consideration because if you put in first it looks as if there are second, third, fourth and fifth. Welfare is paramount these days. If, on the other hand, it's a question of the state needing to protect children from abuse or neglect, which is happening in the home, the state has to prove that the children are at risk of significant harm unless something is done to protect them um, Mm. from from what's going on Mm. at home. Then you have to ask what's best for the children. So the paramount consideration of the child's welfare comes after the threshold of a risk of significant harm has been established. Whereas as between parents, you don't have to look at at the harm threshold. I should say that's really, really well clarified. But I was looking again in the newspapers. I thought you might like this. I'm going to read it out to you because this shows how the law went into operation very shortly afterwards. So we were talking about this happening, gaining the royal assent at the end of July and this is from an article that was published in October time and there's two different acts here I'll read you this this article it says maintenance of wives and children the summary jurisdiction or separation and maintenance act and the guardianship of infant act both of which came into operation on the 1st of October 1925 were put into force for the very first time the Marylebone Police Court on Saturday. In the first case, a wife living with her husband summoned him for willfully neglecting to provide reasonable maintenance for herself and her child. 
and she obtained a separation order against him and an allowance of 25 shillings a week and the custody of the child. The magistrate, who was, this is brilliant, he was called Mr Wilberforce, <laughs> believe it or not, warned her, uh, warned her, however, that the order was only payable on her leaving and mm. living apart from her husband, and that if she went on living with him for three months, the order would come to an end. Now, this second part is about the Guardianship of Infants Act, and it says, in the second case, under the Guardianship of Infant Act, Infants Act, a wife obtained an order for the custody and maintenance of her child aged 11, although she had told her husband she refused to have anything more to do with him. The husband, who was stated to have contributed nothing to his wife's support for two years, was ordered to pay her 15 shillings a week for the child's maintenance. Mm. But I just think it's wonderful when you see mm. these things in practice in the real world. And these are women well, using the law. The big thing, which I didn't mention about the Guardianship of the Infants Act, is that it gave magistrates' courts jurisdiction yeah. to decide these cases. Is that the police court? Well, police court, yes. Yeah. We used to call them police courts yeah. because they were the first port of call, you know, when people were arrested, still are, when people are arrested by the police. But we stopped calling them police courts because that looked as if the police ran them, which, of course, they didn't. Um, but, yes, they were given jurisdiction uh, over custody of, of infants and maintenance for both wives and children. Mm. It became a question that the poor could go to court. Mm. But both of those acts that you've referred to I picked the Guardianship of Infants Act because it's the one that still has resonance today, but they both provided that you could get an order before you separated, so you would know whether you had the children, you'd know how much money you had. They weren't enforceable until you separated, but you could get an order beforehand. I'm not sure how realistic that would have been in many cases, uh, but that was the idea. Do you know anything more about the... Uh, this, this is quietly revolutionary again. Do you know anything more about the reception of this act? I don't know that there was anything negative about it. Of course, what what it had left undone was that married mothers still didn't have any rights or authority until a court gave her some, or the husband died. So every time there was a separation or a divorce, a court had to make an order in order that she had the right either to look after or to see the children. And that went on until 1973. Uh, and in 1973, the Guardianship Act gave married mothers equal rights and authority over their children wh without there having to be any court order. So what Sir Claude Schuster had thought was completely impractical and nonsense eventually became the law in 1973. Fancy that. So that's a second wave of legislation on women's rights, if you think about it. We had the Equal Pay Act in 1970, and we had the Sex Discrimination Act in 1975. And sandwiched between those two was the Guardianship Act of 1973. Wow. <laughs> it's a long continuing story of the law, isn't it? But this it moment here in the summer of 1925 seems yeah. a real milestone. And mm. the legislation seems to have survived for the best part of half a century. Oh, yes. And the principle that the welfare of the child is paramount is still, as I was explaining, the law today. And the idea of equality between parents is now in the law. So yes, it set the scene. Wonderful. And do you think there is any one person we've got to thank for that? Or is it just a collection of different activists and thinkers? I think it is mainly the movement for women's rights, those two organisations. There were other organisations as well. 
Also, there were now uh, the odd woman in Parliament, and one of the bills that had precursor to the Guardianship of Infants Act had been introduced by a woman member of Parliament during the Labour government in 24. And I think it would probably have got passed. Oh, actually, she hers probably not, because hers provided for equal rights and authority. Uh, and that was what the uh, government officials weren't keen on. Well, listen, you've given us two really, really interesting pieces of legislation so far. And we've got one more mm. to look at now. This really comes on the tails of the last Royal Assent, 7th of August, so a week later. This is the Widows, Orphans and Old Age Contributory Pensions Act. Quite a mouthful. Can you tell us about it and why it interests you? Well, it, de it dealt with uh, more than widows and orphans because it also dealt with old age pensions. But it was the first piece of legislation to give widows pensions. And it had been recognised that widows were one of the greatest problems of poverty. Eleanor Rathbone, yet again, she'd done a study of uh, widows in Liverpool, which revealed just the dire straits in which widows, particularly widows with children, uh, were living, because there was nothing for them other than the poor law. And the poor law, of course, was stigmatising and uh, generally didn't, didn't treat them as anybody would want to be treated. So there was a campaign for widows' pensions, but that ran into the problem that it might cost money. Of course, it would cost money. And eventually, the compromise that was uh, hammered out was that they were contributory pensions, which meant that you qualified if your deceased husband had paid enough contributions into a national insurance fund. So it, it was the forerunner of the whole idea of contributory social security benefits, which is still with us today. And presumably, we're talking less than a decade after the worst moments of the, the Great mm. War, as they mm. thought about it then, there would have been a lot of widows around. So well, the government had started paying pensions to the widows of men who died on active service during the war. So that, I mean, that wasn't legislation. It was just that that's what they were doing. Yeah. And that was a, a bit of a model for the whole idea of other widows having pensions. The numbers here as well are worth, mm. are worth stressing. Again, this yeah. is from the newspapers, but mm. it gives, this is from the Kensington Post in October of 1925. The first stage of the Widows, Orphans and Old Age Contributory Pensions Act, which has passed Parliament last summer, comes into operation um, at the start of January of 1926. And they they say it's a free gift by the state of pensions and allowances to 196,000 widows, mm. 306, uh, 386,000 children. I mean, we can look at the language there, but mm. the numbers... Mm. large this again mm. yeah matters to so many people it, doesn't it? it did matter to a great many people uh, mind you because it was contributory mm. <laughs> to call it a free gift was yeah, <laughs> because crazy. obviously uh widows whose husbands had not been in uh the sort of employment that meant that they could contribute that they had to contribute to the uh, what we would now call the national insurance fund there would be plenty of those and similarly he might not have paid enough contributions Mm. But of course, we continued to have widows' benefits 
until quite recently. My mother, for example, benefited from something called the Widowed Mother's Allowance, which was available to widowed mothers who were, I think, over the age of 50 when their husbands died. And my father died when I was 13 and my younger sister was 12. Uh, And my mother got the widowed mother's allowance, which was really very beneficial. But of course, it had to be changed because it was sex discriminatory. Oh, I see. Because widowers didn't get it. It wasn't thought necessary, obviously, in the olden days, uh, but um, it uh, it eventually had to be changed. And now we've got different sorts of, of bereavement benefits. Uh, it's interesting when you get two progressive pieces of legislation coming into collision with each other. Well, you have a similar thing with family allowances, of course, which Eleanor Rathbone was also responsible for, eventually family allowances, which were there to help mothers look after their children. What you've got here, Lady Hale, I'd say, is three different pieces, three different facts that um, empower women in different ways. I think that's Mm. the kind of the unifying force here. Um, At the beginning of 1925, they would have been in a much more vulnerable position than they would have been at the start of 1926. Mm. Is this a trend that continued throughout the 20s into the 30s? Or has the story of women's rights got lots Mm. of peaks and troughs? Uh, It does have peaks and troughs. Um, But we have become interested in the interwar years. Um, I mean, I'm contributing to a collection of essays on women's legal landmarks in the interwar years because there were so many of them. These are three of them. Um, but there were others as well. But I think, it, as happens with a lot of things, there's a burst of activity in those 10 years after the First World War. And then things go quiet and other problems um, take mm. over, um, really serious problems, as we had during the 30s and so on. There was one or two catchings up, getting rid of some of the remnants of the idea that a husband and wife were one person in law and that person was the husband. So there was legislation in 1935 which uh, helped to deal with some of that. There were one or two things, obviously. The setting up of the welfare state after the Second World War was pretty important for women uh, as well. But these are more part of general trends, I think, rather than specifically for women's equality. And as I was saying earlier, we then had a second burst of women's equality legislation in the 1970s when we had family law was revolutionised to be much more tender to the homemaking spouse of whichever gender, but of course it was almost always the wife, enabling her to make claims on the property of the breadwinning spouse, which she hadn't been able to do before very much. So family law was transformed. Great, better remedies for domestic violence and abuse in the 70s. Uh, better remedies for people who are homeless in the 70s, especially people with dependent children who are mainly women. Sex discrimination uh, and the Equal Pay Acts. Better remedies in magistrate's courts for married women and so on. So there was a whole burst of activity in the 70s. Didn't necessarily solve the problems, but there was a burst of activity. So this is one of these these bursts of activities that we've had over the past century. Let's bring the story up to date, though, today. Women and the Law is the title of one of your books, I believe, published in 1984. 
Um, mm. If you were to focus on that as a title for an article in 2023, are there any particular issues legally that you think challenge the place of women in society today that you think people ought to think about? I think people are thinking about them. Uh, there will be aspects of the law that probably could do with some change. I mean, the most obvious example of that is the rights of people who are living together without being married, because at the moment they don't have the same sorts of rights to equalise the financial advantage and disadvantage that has resulted from the relationship that obviously married couples have. So that's the biggest gap, I think, uh, in the law. But most people these days are not necessarily thinking that it's the law that's at fault, but it's administration which can be. Because we're all very well aware of the continuing extent of violence and abuse against women and girls, uh, particularly sexual uh, violence and abuse, but not only that, and how little of that gets prevented or punished, successfully prosecuted, uh, and that is not necessarily down to problems with the law. It's down to problems with the administration of the law, you know, how these things are investigated, what the police choose to do or not to do, what the Crown Prosecution Service chooses to do or not to do, and so on. So I, I, I think that would be the general consensus, that there may be tidings up that are needed, but mostly it's actually putting into practice yeah, the laws that we I, already I was, have. <clears throat> I remember watching Angela Rayner not mm. so long ago at the dispatch mm. box pointing mm. out the um, statistics about prosecution mm. for rape and, and domestic violence and they are really really woeful mm. so that's maybe where we should be thinking mm. it's a good point about the law but let's go back to 1925 to finish and we always finish with a moment mm. of material history Mm. Now, if we were to offer you the opportunity to metaphorically pick up an object from 1925 in a way to symbolise what you've been talking about today or maybe mm. just something you'd like to have in this beautiful home of yours, is there anything that you would like? Oh, you've rather sprung this on me, but it occurred to me that my mother was born in 1908. So in 1925, she would have been 17, something like that. So thinking about what her life will have been like, she was being encouraged by her father to study at school and get qualifications. Uh, and she used to say, I'd much rather be out playing tennis rather than getting my qualifications. But of course, it was very much in her interest to get qualifications because when she was suddenly widowed and left with two children to support, she could dust off those qualifications and support us. So that was great. So I think I would quite like to have my mother's tennis racket. <laughs> Symbols are kind of freedom and uh, enjoyment of life. Yeah. And uh, mm. and also the 1920s tennis racket. So I imagine those beautiful wooden things. that um, Undoubtedly be wooden, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Lady Hale, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk to us today, to guide us through 1925, to show us some moments that really matter to people and... We can look back on them, I think, very fondly a century on. Thank you for coming on Travels Through Time. Thank you. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Lady Hale about 1925 and three crucial pieces of legislation, 
in the long story of women's liberation. You can find out much more about Lady Hell's life in the most engaging way in her beautifully written memoir, Spider Woman. More as ever is on our website at tttpodcast.com. I'll be back with another special episode next week. But from me for now, that's it. Thank you very much for listening.